Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tyco Alhambra, thank you for listening. We are continuing with the three imposters this week with the incident of the private bar. We are roughly about halfway through, so woo, gonna do it this time. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to say at the beginning here, so let's go ahead and move on into the story. The Incident of the Private Bar Mr. Dyson often meditated at odd moments over the singular tale he had listened to at the Café de la Touraine. In the first place, he cherished a profound conviction that the words of truth were scattered with a too niggardly and sparing hand over the agreeable history of Mr. Smith and the Black Gulf Canyon. And secondly, there was the undeniable fact of the profound agitation of the narrator and his gestures on the pavement, too violent to be simulated. The idea of a man going about London, haunted by the fear of meeting a young man with spectacles, struck Dyson as supremely ridiculous. He searched his memory for some precedent in romance, but without success. He paid visits at odd times to the little café, hoping to find Mr. Wilkins there, and he kept a sharp watch on the great generation of the spectacled men, without much doubt that he would remember the face of the individual whom he had seen dart out of the aerated bread shop. All his peregrinations and researches, however, seemed to lead to nothing of value, and Dyson needed all his warm conviction of his innate detective powers and his strong scent for mystery to sustain him in his endeavors. In fact, he had two affairs on hand, and every day, as he passed through streets crowded or deserted and lurked in the obscure districts and watched at corners, he was more than surprised to find that the affair of the gold coin persistently avoided him, while the ingenious Wilkins and the young man with spectacles whom he dreaded seemed to have vanished from the pavements. He was pondering these problems one evening in a house of call in the Strand, and the obstinacy with which the persons he so ardently desired to meet hung back gave the modest tankard before him an additional touch of bitter. As it happened, he was alone in his compartment, and without thinking, he uttered aloud the burden of his meditations. "'How bizarre it all is,' he said. "'A man walking the pavement with the dread of a timid-looking young man with spectacles continually hovering before his eyes.' and there was some tremendous feeling at work, I could swear to that. Quick as thought, before he had finished the sentence, a head popped around the barrier and was withdrawn again, and while Dyson was wondering what this could mean, the door of the compartment was swung open, and a smooth, clean-shaven, and smiling gentleman entered. "'You will excuse me, sir,' he said politely, "'for intruding on your thoughts, but you made a remark a minute ago.' "'I did,' said Dyson.' "'I have been puzzling over a foolish matter, and I thought aloud. "'As you heard what I said and seem interested, "'perhaps you may be able to relieve my perplexity.' "'Indeed, I scarcely know. "'It is an odd coincidence. "'One has to be cautious. "'I suppose, sir, that you would have no repulsion "'in assisting the ends of justice.' "'Justice,' replied Dyson, "'is a term of such wide meaning "'that I, too, feel doubtful about giving an answer. "'But this place is not altogether fit for such a discussion.' "'Perhaps you would come to my rooms. "'You are very kind. "'My name is Burton, "'but I am sorry to say I have not a card with me. "'Do you live near here? "'Within ten minutes' walk.' "'Mr. Burton took out his watch "'and seemed to be making a rapid calculation. "'I have a train to catch,' he said, "'but after all, it is a late one, "'so if you don't mind, I think I will come with you. "'I am sure we should have a little talk together. "'We turn up here?' 
The theaters were filling as they crossed the strand. The street seemed alive with voices, and Dyson looked fondly about him. The glittering lines of gas lamps, with here and there the blinding radiance of an electric light, the hansoms that flashed to and fro with ringing bells, the laden buses, and the eager hurrying east and west of the foot passengers made this most enchanting picture, and the graceful spire of St. Mary Lestrand on the one hand, and the last flash of sunset on the other, were to him a cause of thanksgiving as the gorse blossomed to Linnaeus. Mr. Burton caught his look of fondness as they crossed the street. "'I see you can find the picturesque in London,' he said. "'To me this great town is, as I see it is to you, the study and the love of life. Yet how few there are that can pierce the veils of apparent monotony and meanness. I have read in a paper, which is said to have the largest circulation in the world, a comparison between the aspects of London and Paris, a comparison which should be positively laureate as the great masterpiece of fatuous stupidity. Conceive, if you can, a human being of ordinary intelligence, preferring the boulevards to our London streets. Imagine a man calling for the wholesale destruction of our most charming city in order that the dull uniformity of that whited sepulchre called Paris should be reproduced here in London. Is it not positively incredible? My dear sir, said Dyson, regarding Burton with a good deal of interest. I agree most heartily with your opinions, but I really cannot share your wonder. Have you ever heard how much George Eliot received for Romola? Do you know what the circulation of Robert Ellesmere was? Do you read titbits regularly? To me, on the contrary, it is constant matter both for wonder and thanksgiving that London was not boulevardized twenty years ago. I praise that exquisite jagged skyline that stands up against the pale greens and fading blues and flushing clouds of sunset, but I wonder even more than I praise. As for St. Mary Lestrand, its preservation is a miracle, nothing more or less, a thing of exquisite beauty versus four buses abreast. Really, the conclusion is too obvious. Didn't you read the letter of the man who proposed that the whole mysterious system, the immemorial plan of computing Easter, should be abolished offhand because he doesn't like his son having his holidays as early as March 20th? But shall we be going on? They had lingered at the corner of a street on the north side of the Strand, enjoying the contrasts and the glamour of the scene. Dyson pointed the way with a gesture, and they strolled up the comparatively deserted streets, slanting a little to the right, and thus arriving at Dyson's lodging on the verge of Bloomsbury. Mr. Burton took a comfortable armchair by the open window, while Dyson lit the candles and produced the whiskey and soda and cigarettes. "'They tell me these cigarettes are very good,' he said, "'but I know nothing about it myself. I hold at last that there is only one tobacco, and that is shag. I suppose I could not tempt you to try a pipeful.' Mr. Burton smilingly refused the offer and picked out a cigarette from the box. When he had smoked it half through, he said with some hesitation, "'It is really kind of you to have me here, Mr. Dyson. The fact is that the interests at issue are far too serious to be discussed in a bar, where, as you found for yourself, there may be listeners, voluntary or involuntary, on each side. I think the remark I heard you make was something about the oddity of an individual going about London in deadly fear of a young man with spectacles.' "'Yes, that was it. "'Well, would you mind confiding to me "'these circumstances that gave rise to the reflection? "'Not in the least. "'It was like this.' "'And he ran over in brief outline "'the adventure in Oxford Street, "'dwelling on the violence of Mr. Wilkins' gestures, 
but wholly suppressing the tale told in the café. He told me he lived in constant terror of meeting this man, and I left him when I thought he was cool enough to look after himself, said Dyson, ending his narrative. Really, said Mr. Burton, and you actually saw this mysterious person? Yes, and could you describe him? Well, he looked to me a youngish man, pale and nervous. He had small black side whiskers and wore rather large spectacles. Oh, but this is simply marvelous. You astonish me, for I must tell you that my interest in the matter is this. I am not in the least in terror of meeting a dark young man with spectacles, but I shrewdly suspect a person of that description would much rather not meet me. And yet the account you give of the man tallies exactly. A nervous glance to right and left, is it not so? And, as you observed, he wears prominent spectacles and has small black whiskers. There cannot surely be two people exactly identical— one a cause of terror, and the other, I should imagine, extremely anxious to get out of the way. But have you seen this man since? No, I have not, and I have been looking out for him pretty keenly. But, of course, he may have left London, and England too, for that matter. Hardly, I think. Well, Mr. Dyson, it is only fair that I should explain my story now that I have listened to yours. I must tell you, then, that I am an agent of curiosities and precious things of all kinds. An odd employment, isn't it? Of course, I wasn't brought up in the business. I gradually fell into it. I have always been fond of things queer and rare, and by the time I was twenty, I had made half a dozen collections. It is not generally known how often farm laborers come upon rarities. You would be astonished if I told you what I have seen turned up by the plough. I lived in the country in those days, and I used to buy anything the men on the farms brought me, and I had the queerest set of rubbish, as my friends called my collection— but that's how I got the scent of the business, which means everything, and later on it struck me that I might very well turn my knowledge to account and add to my income. Since those early days, I have been in most quarters of the world, and some very valuable things have passed through my hands, and I have had to engage in difficult and delicate negotiations. You have possibly heard of the con opal, called in the East the Stone of a Thousand and One Colors? Well, perhaps the conquest of that stone was my greatest achievement— I call it myself the stone of the thousand and one lies, for I assure you that I had to invent a cycle of folklore before the Raja who owned it would consent to sell the thing. I subsidized in wandering storytellers who told tales in which the opal played a frightful part. I hired a holy man, a great ascetic, to prophesy against the thing in the language of Eastern symbolism. In short, I frightened the Raja out of his wits. So you see, there is room for diplomacy in the traffic I am engaged in. I have to be ever on my guard, and I have often been sensible that, unless I watched every step and weighed every word, my life would not last me much longer. Last April, I became aware of the existence of a highly valuable antique gem. It was in southern Italy and in the possession of persons who were ignorant of its real value. It has always been my experience that it is precisely the ignorant who are most difficult to deal with. I have met farmers who are under the impression that a shilling of George I was a find of almost incalculable value, and all the defeats I have sustained have been at the hands of people of this description. Reflecting on these facts, I saw that the acquisition of the gem I have mentioned would be an affair demanding the nicest diplomacy. I might possibly have got it by offering a sum approaching its real value, but I need not point out to you that such a proceeding would be most unbusinesslike. Indeed, I doubt whether it would have been successful, 
for the cupidity of such persons is aroused by a sum which seems enormous, and the low cunning which serves them in place of intelligence immediately suggests that the object for which such an amount is offered must be worth at least double. Of course, when it is a matter of an ordinary curiosity, an old jug, a carved chest, or a queer brass lantern, one does not much care. The cupidity of the owner defeats its object. The collector laughs and goes away, for he is aware that such things are by no means unique. But this gem I fervently desired to possess, and as I did not see my way to giving more than a hundredth part of its value, I was conscious that all my, let us say, imaginative and diplomatic powers would have to be exerted. I am sorry to say that I came to the conclusion that I could not undertake to carry the matter through single-handed, and I determined to confide in my assistant, a young man named William Robbins, whom I judged to be by no means devoid of capacity. My idea was that Robbins should get himself up as a low-class dealer in precious stones. He could patter a little Italian, and would go to the town in question and manage to see the gem we were after, possibly by offering some trifling articles of jewellery for sale, but that I left to be decided. Then my work was to begin, but I will not trouble you with a tale told twice over. In due course, then, Robbins went off to Italy with an assortment of uncut stones and a few rings, and some jewellery I bought in Birmingham, on purpose for this expedition. A week later I followed him, travelling leisurely, so that I was a fortnight later in arriving at our common destination. There was a decent hotel in the town, and on my inquiring of the landlord whether there were many strangers in the place, he told me very few. He had heard there was an Englishman staying in a small tavern, a peddler, he said, who sold beautiful trinkets very cheaply, and wanted to buy old rubbish. For five or six days I took life leisurely, and I must say I enjoyed myself. It was part of my plan to make the people think I was an enormously rich man, and I knew that such items as the extravagance of my meals and the price of every bottle of wine I drank would not be suffered, as Sancho Ponza puts it, to rot in the landlord's breast. At the end of the week, I was fortunate enough to make the acquaintance of Signor Molini, the owner of the gem I coveted at the café, and with his ready hospitality and my geniality, I was soon established as a friend of the house. On my third or fourth visit, I managed to make the Italians talk about the English peddler who, they said, spoke a most detestable Italian. But that does not matter, said the Signora Melini, for he has the beautiful things, which he sells very, very cheap. I hope you may not find he has cheated you, I said, for I must tell you that English people give these fellows a very wide berth. They usually make a great parade of the cheapness of their goods, which often turn out to be double the price of better articles in the shops. They would, they would not hear of this, and Signor Melini insisted on showing me the three rings and the bracelet she had bought of the peddler. She told me the price she had paid, and after scrutinizing the articles carefully, I had to confess that she had made a bargain, and indeed Robbins had sold her the things at about fifty percent below market value. I admired the trinkets as I gave them back to the lady, and I hinted that the peddler must be a somewhat foolish specimen of his class. Two days later, as I was taking my vermouth at the café with Signor Melini, he led the conversation back to the peddler, and mentioned casually that he had shown the man a little curiosity, for which he had made rather a handsome offer. "'My dear sir,' I said, "'I hope you will be careful. I told you that the travelling tradesman does not bear a very high reputation in England, and notwithstanding his apparent simplicity, this fellow may turn out to be an errant cheat. May I ask you what is the nature of the curiosity you have shown him?' He told me it was a little thing, a pretty little stone, with some figures cut out on it. People said it was old. I should like to examine it, I replied. As it happens, I have seen a good deal of these gems. 
We have a fine collection of them in our museum at London. In due course I was shown the article, and I held the gem I so coveted between my fingers. I looked at it coolly and put it down carelessly on the table. "'Would you mind telling me, Signor? I said, "'how much my fellow countrymen offered you for this?' "'Well,' he said, "'my wife says the man must be mad. "'He said he would give me twenty lira for it.' "'I looked at him quietly and took up the gem "'and pretended to examine it in the light more carefully. "'I turned it over and over "'and finally pulled out a magnifying glass from my pocket "'and seemed to search every line in the cutting "'with minutest scrutiny. "'My dear sir,' I said at last, I am inclined to agree with Signora Molini. If this gem were genuine, it would be worth some money. But as it happens to be a rather bad forgery, it is not worth twenty centesimi. It was sophisticated, I should imagine, some time in the last century and by a very unskillful hand. Well, then we had better get rid of it, said Molini. I never thought it was worth anything myself. Of course, I am sorry for the peddler, but one must let a man know his own trade. I shall tell him we will take the twenty lira. "'Excuse me,' I said. "'The man wants a lesson. "'It would be a charity to give him one. "'Tell him that you will not take anything under eighty lira, "'and I shall be much surprised if he does not close with you at once.' "'A day or two later, I heard that the English peddler had gone away "'after debasing the minds of the country people with Birmingham art jewellery, "'for I admit that the gold sleeve links like kidney beans, "'the silver chains made apparently after the pattern of a dog chain, "'and the initial brooches have always been heavy on my conscience.' I cannot acquit myself of having indirectly contributed to debauch the taste of a simple folk, but I hope that the end I had in view may finally outbalance this heavy charge. Soon afterwards, I paid a farewell visit at the Molinis, and the Signor informed me with an oily chuckle that the plan I had suggested had been completely successful. I congratulated him on his bargain, and went away after expressing a wish that heaven might send many such peddlers in his path. Nothing of interest occurred on my return journey, I had arranged that Robbins was to meet me at a certain place on a certain day, and I went to the appointment full of the coolest confidence. The gem had been conquered, and I had only to reap the fruits of victory. I am sorry to shake that trust in our common human nature which I am sure you possess, but I am compelled to tell you that up to the present date I have never set eyes on my man Robbins, or on the antique gem in his custody. I have found out that he actually arrived in London, for he was seen three days before my arrival in England by a pawnbroker of my acquaintance, consuming his favourite beverage, four ale, in the tavern where we met to-night. Since then he has not been heard of. I hope you will now pardon my curiosity as to the history and adventures of dark young men with spectacles. You will, I am sure, feel for me in my position. The savour of life has disappeared for me. It is a bitter thought that I have rescued one of the most perfect and exquisite specimens of antique art from the hands of ignorant and indeed unscrupulous persons, only to deliver it into the keeping of a man who is evidently utterly devoid of the very elements of commercial morality. "'My dear sir,' said Dyson, "'you will allow me to compliment you on your style. Your adventures have interested me exceedingly. But, forgive me, you just now used the word morality. Would not some persons take exception to your own methods of business?' I can conceive myself flaws of a moral kind being found in the very original conception you have described to me. I can imagine the Puritan shrinking in dismay from your scheme, pronouncing it unscrupulous, nay, dishonest. Mr. Burton helped himself, very frankly, to some more whiskey. "'Your scruples entertain me,' he said. "'Perhaps you have not gone very deeply into these questions of ethics. I have been compelled to do so myself, 
just as I was forced to master a simple system of bookkeeping. Without bookkeeping, and still more without a system of ethics, it is impossible to conduct a business such as mine, but I assure you that I am often profoundly saddened as I pass through the crowded streets and watch the world at work by the thought of how few amongst all these hurrying individuals, black-hatted, well-dressed, educated we may presume sufficiently, how few amongst them have any reason to sense of morality. Even you have not weighed the question, although you study life and affairs, and to a certain extent penetrate the veils and masks of the comedy of man. Even you judge by empty conventions and the false money which is allowed to pass current as sterling coin. Allow me to play the part of Socrates. I shall teach you nothing that you do not know. I shall merely lay aside the wrappings of prejudice and bad logic and show you the real image which you possess in your soul. Come then, do you allow that happiness is anything? Certainly, said Dyson. And happiness is desirable or undesirable? Desirable, of course. And what shall we call the man who gives happiness? Is he not a philanthropist? I think so. And such a person is praiseworthy, and the more praiseworthy in the proportion of the persons whom he makes happy? By all means. So that he who makes a whole nation happy is praiseworthy in the extreme, and the action by which he gives happiness is the highest virtue? It appears so, O. Burton, said Dyson, who found something very exquisite in the character of his visitor. Quite so. You find the several conclusions inevitable. Well, apply them to the story I have told you. I conferred happiness on myself by obtaining, as I thought, possession of the gem. I conferred happiness on the Melinis by getting them eighty lira instead of an object for which they had not the slightest value, and I intend to confer happiness on the whole British nation by selling the thing to the British Museum, to say nothing of the happiness a profit of about nine thousand percent would have conferred on me. I assure you, I regard Robbins as an interferer with the cosmos and fair order of things. But that is nothing. You perceive that I am an apostle of the very highest morality. You have been forced to yield to argument. There certainly seems a great deal in what you advance, said Dyson. I admit that I am a mere amateur of ethics, while you, as you say, have brought the most acute scrutiny to bear on these perplexed and doubtful questions. I can well understand your anxiety to meet the fallacious Robbins, and I congratulate myself on the chance which has made us acquainted. But you will pardon my seeming inhospitality. I see it is half-past eleven, and I think you mentioned a train? Oh, a thousand thanks, Mr. Dyson. I have just time, I see. I will look you up some evening, if I may. Good night. The Decorative Imagination In the course of a few weeks, Dyson became accustomed to the constant incursions of the ingenious Mr. Burton, who showed himself ready to drop in at all hours, not averse to refreshment, and a profound guide in the complicated questions of life. His visits at once terrified and delighted Dyson, who could no longer seat himself at his bureau, secure from interruption while he embarked on literary undertakings, each one of which was to be a masterpiece. On the other hand, it was a vivid pleasure to be confronted with views so highly original, and if here and there Mr. Burton's reasoning seemed tinged with fallacy, yet Dyson freely yielded to the joy of strangeness, and never failed to give his visitor a frank and hearty welcome. Mr. Burton's first inquiry was always after the unprincipled Robins, and he seemed to feel the stings of disappointment when Dyson told him that he had failed to meet this outrage on all morality, as Burton styled him, vowing that sooner or later he would take vengeance on such a shameless betrayal of trust. 
One evening, they had sat together for some time discussing the possibility of laying down for this present generation and our modern and intensely complicated order of society some rules of social diplomacy, such as Lord Bacon gave to the courtiers of King James I. It is a book to make, said Mr. Burton, but who is there capable of making it? I tell you, people are longing for such a book. It would bring fortune to its publisher. Bacon's essays are exquisite, but they have now no practical application. The modern strategist can find but little use in a treatise De Re Militari written by a Florentine in the 15th century. Scarcely more dissimilar are the social conditions of Bacon's time and our own. The rules that he lays down so exquisitely for the courtier and diplomatist of James I's age will avail us little in that rough-and-tumble struggle of today. Life, I am afraid, has deteriorated. It gives little play for fine strokes such as formerly advanced men in the state. Except in such business as mine, where a chance does occur now and then, it has all become, as I said, an affair of rough and tumble. Men still desire to attain, it is true, but what is their moyen de parvenir, a mere imitation, and not a gracious one, of the arts of the soap vendor and the proprietor of baking powder? When I think of these things, my dear Dyson, I confess that I am tempted to despair of my country. You are too pessimistic, my dear fellow. You set up too high a standard. Certainly I agree with you that the times are decadent in many ways. I admit a general appearance of squalor. It needs much philosophy to extract the wonderful and the beautiful from the Cromwell Road or the nonconformist conscience. Australian wines of fine burgundy character, the novels alike of the old women and the new women, popular journalism, these things indeed make for depression. Yet we have our advantages. Before us is unfolded the greatest spectacle the world has ever seen— the mystery of the innumerable unending streets, the strange adventures that must infallibly arise from so complicated a press of interests. Nay, I will say that he who has stood in the ways of a suburb and has seen them stretch before him all shining, void, and desolate at noonday has not lived in vain. Such a sight is in reality more wonderful than any perspective of Baghdad or Grand Cairo. And to set on one side the entertaining history of the gem which you told me, Surely you must have had many singular adventures in your own career. Perhaps not so many as you would think. A good deal, the larger part of my business, has been as commonplace as linen drapery. But, of course, things happen now and then. It is ten years since I have established my agency, and I suppose that a house and estate agent who had been in trade for an equal time could tell you some queer stories. But I must give you a sample of my experiences some night. Why not tonight? said Dyson. This evening seems to me admirably adapted for an odd chapter. Look out into the street. You can catch a view of it if you crane your neck from that chair of yours. Is it not charming, the double row of lamps growing closer in the distance, the hazy outline of the plane tree in the square, and the lights of the hansoms swimming to and fro, gliding and vanishing, and above the sky all clear and blue and shining? Come, let us have one of your Sainte Nouvelle. My dear Tyson, I am delighted to amuse you. With these words, Mr. Burton prefaced the novel of the Iron Maid. I think the most extraordinary event which I can recall took place about five years ago. I was then still feeling my way. I had declared for business and attended regularly at my office, but I had not succeeded in establishing a really profitable connection, and consequently I had a good deal of leisure time on my hands. I have never thought fit to trouble you with the details of my private life. 
they would be entirely devoid of interest. I must briefly say, however, that I had a numerous circle of acquaintance and was never at a loss as to how to spend my evenings. I was so fortunate as to have friends in most of the ranks of the social order. There is nothing so unfortunate to my mind as a specialized circle wherein a certain round of ideas is continually traversed and retraversed. I have always tried to find out new types and persons whose brains contain something fresh to me. One may chance to gain information even from the conversation of city men on an omnibus. Amongst my acquaintance, I knew a young doctor who lived in a far outlying suburb, and I used often to brave the intolerably slow railway journey to have the pleasure of listening to his talk. One night we conversed so eagerly together over our pipes and whiskey that the clock passed unnoticed, and when I glanced up, I realized with a shock that I had just five minutes in which to catch the last tram. I made a dash for my hat and stick and jumped out of the house and down the steps and tore at full speed up the street. It was no good, however. There was a shriek of the engine whistle, and I stood there at the station door and saw far on the long, dark line of the embankment a red light shine and vanish, and a porter came down and shut the door with a bang. "'How far to London?' I asked him. "'Good nine miles to Waterloo Bridge.' And with that he went off. Before me was the long suburban street, its dreary distance marked by rows of twinkling lamps, and the air was poisoned by the faint, sickly smell of burning bricks. It was not a cheerful prospect by any means, and I had to walk through nine miles of such streets, deserted as those of Pompeii. I knew pretty well what direction to take, so I set out wearily, looking at the stretch of lamps vanishing in perspective, and as I walked, street after street branched off to right and left, some far-reaching to distances that seemed endless, communicating with other systems of thoroughfare, and some mere protoplasmic streets, beginning in orderly fashion with serried two-story houses, and ending suddenly in waste and pits and rubbish heaps, and fields whence the magic had departed. I have spoken of systems of thoroughfare, and I assure you that walking alone through these silent places, I felt fantasy growing on me, and some glamour of the infinite. There was here, I felt, an immensity as in the outer void of the universe. I passed from unknown to unknown, my way marked by lamps like stars, and on either hand was an unknown world where myriads of men dwelt and slept, street leading into street as it seemed to world's end. At first the road by which I was travelling was lined with houses of unutterable monotony, a wall of grey brick pierced by two stories of windows, drawn close to the very pavement. But by degrees I noticed an improvement. There were gardens, and these grew larger. The suburban builder began to allow himself a wider scope, and for a certain distance each flight of steps was guarded by twin lions of plaster and scents of flowers prevailed over the fume of heated bricks. The road began to climb a hill, and looking up a side street, I saw the half-moon rise over plane trees, and there on the other side was as if a white cloud had fallen, and the air around it was sweetened as with incense. It was a may tree in full bloom. I pressed on stubbornly, listening for the wheels and the clatter of some belated hansom, but into that land of men who go to the city in the morning and return in the evening, the hansom rarely enters, and I had resigned myself once more to the walk when I suddenly became aware that someone was advancing to meet me along the sidewalk. The man was strolling rather aimlessly, 
and though the time and the place would have allowed an unconventional style of dress, he was vested in the ordinary frock coat, black tie, and silk hat of civilization. We met each other under the lamp, and as often happens in this great town, two casual passengers brought face to face found, each in the other, an acquaintance. Mr. Matthias, I think. Quite so, and you are Frank Burton. You know you are a man with a Christian name, so I won't apologize for my familiarity. But may I ask where you are going? I explained the situation to him, saying I had traversed a region as unknown to me as the darkest recesses of Africa. I think I only have about five miles farther, I concluded. Nonsense! You must come home with me. My house is close by. In fact, I was just taking my evening walk when we met. Come along. I dare say you will find a makeshift bed easier than a five-mile walk. I let him take my arm and lead me along, though I was a good deal surprised at so much geniality from a man who was, after all, a mere casual club acquaintance. I suppose I had spoken to Mr. Matthias half a dozen times. He was a man who would sit silent in an armchair for hours, neither reading nor smoking, but now and again moistening his lips with his tongue and smiling queerly to himself. I confess he had never attracted me, and on the whole I should have preferred to continue my walk, but he took my arm and led me up a side street and stopped at a door in a high wall. We passed through the still moonlit garden, beneath the black shadow of an old cedar, and into an old red brick house with many gables. I was tired enough, and I sighed with relief as I let myself fall into a great leather armchair. You know the infernal grit with which they strew the sidewalks in these suburban districts. It makes walking a penance, and I felt my four-mile tramp had made me more weary than ten miles on an honest country road. I looked about the room with some curiosity. There was a shaded lamp which threw a circle of brilliant light on a heap of papers lying on an old brass-bound secretaire of the last century, but the room was all vague and shadowy, and I could only see that it was long and low, and that it was filled with indistinct objects which might be furniture. Mr. Matthias sat down in a second armchair and looked about him with that odd smile of his. He was a queer-looking man, clean-shaven and white to the lips. I should think his age was something between fifty and sixty. "'Now I have got you here,' he began. "'I must inflict my hobby on you. "'You knew I was a collector? "'Oh, yes. "'I have devoted many years to collecting curiosities, "'which I think are really curious. "'But we must have a better light.' He advanced into the middle of the room and lit a lamp which hung from the ceiling, and as the bright light flashed round the wick from every corner in space, there seemed to start a horror. Great wooden frames with complicated apparatus of ropes and pulleys stood against the wall. A wheel of strange shape had a place beside a thing that looked like a gigantic gridiron. Little tables glittered with bright steel instruments carelessly put down as if ready for use. A screw and vice loomed out, casting ugly shadows, and in another nook was a saw with cruel, jagged teeth. Yes, said Mr. Matthias, they are, as you suggest, instruments of torture, of torture and death. Some, many, I may say, have been used. A few are reproductions after ancient examples. Those knives were used for flaying. That frame is a rack and a very fine specimen. Look at this, it comes from Venice. You see that sort of collar, something like a big horseshoe? Well, the patient, let us call him, sat down quite comfortably, and the horseshoe was neatly fitted round his neck. Then the two ends were joined with a silken band, and the executioner began to turn a handle connected with the band. 
The horseshoe contracted very gradually as the band tightened, and the turning continued till the man was strangled. It all took place quietly, in one of those queer garrets under the leads, but these things are all European. The Orientals are, of course, much more ingenious. These are the Chinese contrivances. You have heard of the heavy death? It is my hobby, this sort of thing. Do you know, I often sit here, hour after hour, and meditate over the collection. I fancy I see the faces of the men who have suffered, faces lean with agony and wet with sweats of death, growing distinct out of the gloom, and I hear the echoes of their cries for mercy. But I must show you my latest acquisition. I come into the next room. I followed Mr. Matthias out. The weariness of the walk, the late hour, and the strangeness of it all made me feel like a man in a dream. Nothing would have surprised me very much. The second room was as the first, crowded with ghastly instruments. But beneath the lamp was a wooden platform, and a figure stood on it. It was a large statue of a naked woman, fashioned in green bronze. The arms were stretched out, and there was a smile on the lips. It might well have been intended for a Venus, and yet there was about the thing an evil and a deadly look. Mr. Matthias looked at it complacently. "'Quite a work of art, isn't it?' he said. "'It's made of bronze, as you see, but it has long had the name of the Iron Maid. I got it from Germany, and it was only unpacked this afternoon. Indeed, I have not yet had time to open the letter of advice. You see that very small knob between the breasts?' Well, the victim was bound to the maid, the knob was pressed, and the arms slowly tightened round the neck. You can imagine the result. As Mr. Matthias talked, he patted the figure affectionately. I had turned away, for I sickened at the sight of the man and his loathsome treasure. There was a slight click of which I took no notice, it was not much louder than the tick of a clock, and then I heard a sudden whirr, the noise of machinery in motion, and I faced round. I have never forgotten the hideous agony on Matthias's face as those relentless arms tightened about his neck. There was a wild struggle as of a beast in the toils, and then a shriek that ended in a choking groan. The whirring noise had suddenly changed into a heavy droning. I tore with all my might at the bronze arms and strove to wrench them apart, but I could do nothing. The head had slowly bent down, and the green lips were on the lips of Matthias. Of course, I had to attend the inquest. The letter which had accompanied the figure was found unopened on the study table. The German firm of dealers cautioned their client to be most careful in touching the Iron Maid, as the machinery had been put in thorough working order. For many revolving weeks, Mr. Burton delighted Dyson by his agreeable conversation, diversified by anecdote and interspersed with the narration of singular adventures. Finally, however, he vanished as suddenly as he had appeared, and on the occasion of his last visit, he contrived to loot a copy of his namesake's anatomy. Dyson, considering this violent attack on the rights of property and certain glaring inconsistencies in the talk of his late friend, arrived at the conclusion that his stories were fabulous and that the Iron Maid only existed in the sphere of a decorative imagination. Hey everybody, that is the end of this part of The Three Imposters. Uh, I'm sorry this sounds a little bit different than everything else in the episode so far. Uh, I am actually not at home when I'm recording this and I left my microphone at home, so this part is all going to be super weird and I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, 
Thank you so much for listening. Uh, everybody who supports me on Patreon, thank you all so much. A uh, very special thank you to um, Ryan Patrick. Thank you so much. Matthias Hansen, I appreciate it. Alder Riley, thank you so much. Mark Vincent, Eric Braun, and Chris Callie, thank you guys so much. Uh, and to new patron Hermagoras, thank you so much for your uh, contribution and your patronage. Um, I really appreciate the support. Um, we're going to pick up next week with the recluse of Bayswater. Uh, and uh, until then, I hope you have an excellent week. Uh, stay home if you can. If you do go out, make sure you wear a mask. Make sure it covers both your nose and your mouth. Um, and then whenever the opportunity to get vaccinated comes up, go and get vaccinated. Thank you all so much. I hope you have a great week and I will see you next time.